Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Hey, uh, we are in week eight of a series that we've been in uh, now for quite some time called The Kingdom. Everybody say The Kingdom. The Kingdom. Oh, good job. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, where we are talking about this Christian manifesto, the subject that Jesus talked about more than anything else during his three-year ministry on earth, the Kingdom of God, or as he often called it, the Kingdom of Heaven. And uh, traditionally, at the beginning of these sermons, we provide a bit of a recap for anyone that's joining us for the first time. Uh, I'm going to force you to go to YouTube or the podcast to get that recap, uh, because in an effort to ensure we have enough time to get to the content today, I'm going to limit our recap to simply say this. Uh, to be a follower of Jesus is to live a kingdom first kind of life. As the graphic behind me suggests and the video on Instagram, all of our, uh, our assets for this uh, series, uh, it is an upside down way of living. To, to be a kingdom first person is to live an upside down kind of life. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've been walking with him for any length of time, you know that he will flip some stuff upside down in your life. He will make some requests of you that do not seem logical, that don't make any sense culturally speaking, socially speaking, economically speaking, but that's what it looks like to live by faith and to uh, be a pursuer of Jesus Christ. He'll ask you to live generously, to serve selflessly, to refuse to build your own brand and build your own name and build your own net worth, but to be obsessed with building his kingdom here on earth. And so in light of those demands of Jesus, uh, we've been asking ourselves a question every single week during this series, confronting one, but one that's important as we consider this upside down kind of life, and that's this. Am I a kingdom person? Have the ways of Jesus, have the teachings of Jesus, have they upended and inverted everything? Am I a completely different person today than I was the day I met Jesus? Or am I still living kind of like I used to live, wrong side up? And uh, we've been considering a number of different principles every single week as we unpack the kingdom. Uh, today will be no different as we consider that question once again. Uh, and the subject that we're going to unpack, again, we're super passionate about it, uh, but I think it's a subject that by and large, the kingdom has done really poorly over the years, and so we're going to do our best to fix that today. Today we're talking about kingdom conflict resolution. Conflict, no one's excited. That's about how I expected Woo! it to be. No, that's good. So what we're going <laughs> to, thank you. What we're going to do is we're going to get into an argument for the next 25 minutes. You ready? And you're going to witness the whole thing, and then we're going to resolve it, and it's going to be great. No, okay, that's not how we do it. Uh, no, we're going we're to talk about some of these, these scriptural principles. Uh, if you are in the Bible reading plan with us here at the Father's House, shameless plug, if, uh, if you would like, we're reading through the New Testament together as a church this year. And uh, if you go on our app, there's a daily reading right there for every single one of our, uh, our scriptures. Uh, but we read John chapter 17 this last week. And John 17 is a moment where we get a glimpse into the prayer life of Jesus. During his last few days before the crucifixion, he begins to cry out to the Father and he prays for you and he prays for me. He says, Father, I pray not just for my disciples that are on earth with me at the moment, but I pray for everyone who will believe upon my name. That's all of us in the room today. And he makes this prayer. He says, I pray that they would be one just as the Father and I are one. And then he says, I pray that they would operate with such perfect unity that their unity would display to the watching world that I love them and that I was sent for them that I exist and that I love the world, which is a massive statement when you consider it. What Jesus is suggesting there in John 17 is that the way we interact with one another, our ability to live connected and, and unified with one another actually displays to our world that Jesus is real and that he loves them. It's a big deal to God. But, but one of the, the greatest enemies and threats to unity is conflict. Conflict. 
specifically unresolved conflict. Anytime we're in arguments, anytime we're in conflict with one another, there is an opportunity for unity or there's an opportunity to divide. And sadly, I think far too often in the body of Christ, we default to division because we don't know how to do conflict very well. And, and here's the thing, when we divide, it isn't just the relationship between you and another person that suffers, the kingdom suffers. Jesus says that it's a blight on the kingdom. Mark chapter three, he said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And I am convinced that one of the main reasons the body of Christ is not standing stronger on a global scale right now is because we have not done conflict well and we live with petty arguments and division, yes, even in the body of Christ. But if we can fix that, we can do what Jesus said. We can display to the world that he's real and that he loves them. So today, come on, we're gonna be kingdom people. We're gonna learn how to do conflict the kingdom way and we're gonna resolve some stuff so that we can be in answer to Jesus's prayer. Are you guys up for that? Awesome. So let me pray and then uh, we'll get into our key text for this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, we welcome you right now to speak to us. Uh, we thank you that you care deeply and intimately about even the relationships that we have with one another here on earth. And God, I, I pray that we would approach this subject today with open minds and open hearts to receive from you and that uh, you would be faithful, Holy Spirit, to not only convict, but to reveal to us who we need to engage with as a result of what we're going to hear today. We love you, and we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In the great name of Jesus, and as sure said, amen. 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 Well, the roadmap that we're going to use today, the scripture that we're going to focus on is Matthew chapter 18. I think that this is the most prescriptive method that Jesus gives us as disciples for how to engage, how to deal with conflict. Uh, so we're going to not waste any time. We're going to jump right into the scripture. If you've got a Bible, you could, you could pull that out and turn to Matthew 18 verse 15. If not, it'll be up here on the screen, but let's read this out. This is what Jesus says. He says, and if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then, if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector." These are the words of Jesus. He gives us a three-step process in dealing with conflict. He says, step one is go and have a conversation. Go to that person who offended you and talk to them. If they don't listen, then move on to step two. Grab another brother or sister in Christ and go and have a follow-up conversation. And if they still don't listen, then you can get the church involved. You can jump into step three. Now, for the sake of time today, we're going to focus a little less on steps two and three, and we're going to spend the majority of our time focusing in on step one. And the reason being is that I think most of us try and avoid step one. Most of us have a hard time with step one. So we want to focus in on what it is that Jesus says and what step one truly looks like. Now, Jesus says, step one, hey, I want you to go and have a conversation. Or for the sake of our chat today, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Jesus tells us to talk about it. Talk about it. Talk about it. Talk about it. Say it again. Don't say it again. <laughs> Jesus tells us to talk about it. But he tells us to talk about it with the person that offended us. Yet I think so many times we find ourselves talking about it to the wrong person. When someone offends me, I find myself, when we get done with work, 
around 5, 5.30, getting ready to make dinner. And Tim walks in the house from his office. I'm like, guess what happened today? Listen up. Something happened. It went down. She said this. I can't believe it. I need you to agree with me because it was not okay. Isn't, can you believe she said that? I hate her. I know. You should. You better. And I begin to talk about it with him. Or maybe that's not you, but instead you get on the phone with a friend. You're like, hey, I just, I just need to talk about something. I, I just need, I'm going to go through it. I just had this situation. Something happened with someone. I'm just going to talk about it to you. I'm going to go through every little detail of what happened. I just really need some advice. I just need to seek some guidance from you. But in reality, it's not guidance we're seeking. It's actually gossip that we're spewing because we're talking about it with the wrong person. Sometimes this even looks like talking about it with your small group that safe place, you know, Wednesday night, groups getting ready to wrap up and it's time for prayer requests. And you're like, oh, I'm going to talk about it. And you begin to talk about it to the wrong group of people, spreading gossip even more. Or maybe you don't go to step two, but you just jump on ahead to step three and you send your pastor a text or you call them on the phone and say, I gotta talk about something. And I'm not gonna make eye contact with any of you in case you sent me a text. <laughs> but we avoid this step one process that Jesus tells us in talking about it to the person who offends us. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like you. You don't talk about it with other people. You're not calling a friend or telling your spouse. You're just kind of keeping it to yourself. Maybe you grew up in a household where your family taught you to not talk about it to keep things, you know, oh, don't say it. You don't have anything nice to say? Don't say it at all. So you just hold it in. You sweep it under the rug. You push it down and say, I'll just deal with it myself. But the truth is that you are talking about it because you're talking about it to yourself. You're rehearsing the thing that that person said. It's bumping around in your mind and you're mulling over it and you're saying over and over again, you're talking about it to yourself by you know, having that offense fresh in your mind. Now, whether we're talking to the wrong people or we're just talking to ourselves, either way, we're not doing what Jesus told us. We're not talking about it with the right person. Instead, we're staying silent towards the person that offended us. And as Tim mentioned, there's division that wants to happen in the body of Christ. We see that it's present. Well, when we say silent with that offender, sometimes that division has less to do with talking too much and it has more to do with talking too little. Ooh, that'll push right there. Say it again. Should I read it out? Yeah. So it's perfect? Yeah. Sometimes division has less to do Show. with talking too much and so more good. to do with talking too little. Come on, someone needs to write that down. Okay. So I want to paint a visual for you because uh, often this is where we, 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 we falter. We fail to talk about it. But what we don't realize is when we're not talking about it, here's what we're doing. We're watering it. When you don't talk about it, you water it. Let me explain what I mean by that. Hebrews 12, look at what the scriptures say. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that, look at this, no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. I love that image. No bitter root grows up. I love that image because it tells me that 
before bitterness becomes bitterness, before it becomes a root, it starts out as something else. What does every plant start out as? It starts out as a seed. When you are offended, there is a seed that gets planted into your heart. Don't judge my artistic skills. That's as good as a heart as I can make, all right? Yes, I'm a five-year-old with a marker. That's fine. But when you are offended, a seed makes its way right there into your heart. Pick an offense, any offense. Someone said something about you. They spread a rumor about you, hurt your feelings. Uh, maybe, maybe there was pain involved or something from childhood. Pick, pick the offense. Every single one of those is like a seed that makes its way into your heart. And once that seed is there, you have to decide what you're going to do with it. If we do exactly what we're learning about here in Matthew chapter 18, if we quickly, immediately, if our knee-jerk response as kingdom people is to go and have a conversation with the other person, then we starve this seed of what it needs to grow. We immediately choke out its ability to turn into anything that will take us out. However, when we don't, we begin to water it. We begin to provide that seed with the sustenance it needs to grow. And every day that goes by where you refuse to have that conversation is like another drink of water to that seed. You walk out into the garden of your life and you pour a little bit more water onto that seed until before you know it, you got a full grown bush of bitterness in your life. You're bitter. How do you, don't call me bitter. You don't know me. Here's what bitterness looks like. Bitterness looks like not being able to hear that person's name without wincing a little bit. Bitterness feels like rehearsing that offense over and over and over again in your mind. And every time you rehearse it, you get more and more furious. You, it festers and it stews. And then you, you begin to imagine scenarios where you're, you're seeing them finally after years or weeks and you're finally gonna unload on them and share all your visceral hatred for what they've done and I'm finally gonna tell them what it's like. And then when you do see them, you shut down and you cower away in fear and you go right back to the, the cycle and you just keep watering that seed. Come on, how many know what I'm talking about today? Yeah. If you're honest, yeah, we know what this feels like. But, but let, me, let, me, let me share a thought with you that's uncomfortable, but it's true and we need to remember this. That bitterness is on you. That's your fault. I know that it would be easy to blame the offender for the bitterness, but scripturally speaking, bitterness is on us, not on them. What did the scripture say in Hebrew? He said, you make every effort to live at peace with other people. He said, you make sure that a bitter root does not grow up in your life. Jesus said in Matthew 18, you go and you have the conversation with somebody in private. You, you, you. Are you noticing the pattern? <laughs> Jesus places the onus of responsibility on the offended party, not the offender. He says, if somebody offends you, it is your job as a kingdom person to take the initiative and have the conversation. Because if you don't, you're just gonna continue to nurture this seed until you got a root of bitterness growing up in your life. 
And, and let me take it one step further. One more thought that, that we can draw from this text. That refusal to water, that refusal to stay silent, it's not just a one-time event. It's a daily discipline that believers need to be engaged in. Because every day, there is some seed out in the garden of your life begging to be watered, begging you to get bitter about those situations. Dare I say, even after, sometimes you have the conversation with somebody. What, what did Hebrews say again? You know, you know what it didn't say? It did not say that you need to get the seed out of your life or you need to uproot bitterness. That would be the logical thing. Well, if I got some seeds that don't belong there, I'm gonna just go ahead and get rid of these things. It didn't say that. He said, your job is to make sure that it doesn't grow up meaning that there's still some immature seed that will remain in your heart probably as long as you're on this planet. Man, I would love to tell you that there is a way to ensure that all of this seed never gets planted in your heart. I'd love to tell you that you can get so calloused and thick-skinned that people can never say anything to offend you. That's just not reality. Offense happens. It's gonna continue to happen. You can't make it unhappen once it's happened. In fact, the longer you live, the more your heart just seems to collect some of these seeds. Ask someone who's a few years older than you, a few decades older than you. There's plenty of opportunity to be offended in this life. But you can't avoid the offense. You get to choose with how you deal with it. Will you water it by staying silent or will we do what Jesus says? Will we talk about it? And if we're kingdom people, we've got to talk about it. Say that again. We've got to talk about it. Yes. Somebody's ready to flee the room like, that's right. Okay, I'm ready to have the conversation. Before you grab your purse, before you leave the room, we need to understand a couple of things. We need to get a couple of things straight before we're ready to have the conversation. Uh, there's two things that we need to keep in mind. I'm gonna address the first and Tim will address the second. The first thing that when it comes to conflict that we need to make sure we do before we have the chat is we need to have the right motive. We need to have the right motive. The wrong motive is going to that other person to have the conversation and expecting an apology from them. That is the wrong motive. It's also the wrong motive for us to have to go to them so we can try and seek justice on our own behalf. We also shouldn't go to that person with the motive of I'm right and you're wrong and I need to set you straight. I need to educate you on this. <laughs> Another motive that we can't have is that we go to them with the intention of simply getting everything off of our chest, every grievance, every detail of what they did to offend us all in an effort to try and make ourselves feel better when we realize that actually doesn't make us feel better. Now, none of those things can be our motive. Instead, the goal is very simple. Our motivation has to be restoration. The motivation is restoration. To be restored with that brother or sister in Christ. To do as it says in Hebrews 12, to make every effort on our part to live at peace with them. To restore unity. So you might be asking yourself, okay, so if I need to have the right motive, then how do I get it? Well, I'm really glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. Are you ready to write this down? It's a big one. It's brilliant. You ready? Pray. Pray. I know that seems a little too simplistic, but you know, some of the most simple things we do in Christianity have the 
the potential to be the most powerful things that we do. And I can say from experience and having chat after chat after chat that this prescriptive method works in, in order to get my heart right and make sure I have the right motive. We pray. So for me, here's what it looks like. I come to God and my intention is to pray for myself and for the, the party that has offended me. Before I even begin to pray, I remind myself this is a brother or a sister in Christ. This is somebody that I'm going to spend eternity worshiping with. And honestly, I even get that image in my head of me and that other person worshiping Jesus for all eternity. And I remind myself what Jesus says in Matthew 13, that we're to love one another. We're on the same team. So I shift my perspective first, and then I begin to pray. God, I pray that they would receive what I have to say. I pray their heart would be open. And I begin to thank God for that person. God, thank you that they're your son. They're your daughter. Thank you for the unique way that you made them. And I get specific here. I begin thanking God for who they are. I remind myself of good things they've done, kindness they've done to me, things that they've done to other people. Why? So it shifts my perspective to focusing on the positive attributes of this person and not just the negative situation that we have in front of us. And then I begin to pray for my own heart. God, would you rid me of the wrong motives of judgment or anger or trying to set them straight? And would you give me your heart and your motive? Something incredible happens in that moment as I pray. All of a sudden, the frustration I have towards them, the anger, the annoyance begins to dim. And it doesn't completely diminish, but it dims. And all of a sudden, my perspective is shifted and I begin to have the right motive, a motive of restoration, that that is the goal. That's the intention in having the talk. So now that I have my motive right, it's time to go and talk about it. And as I begin to have this conversation, verse 15 says that if the other person listens and confesses it, then you've won that person back. That word listens means that they truly hear you, not just with their ears, but their hearts engaged, and that they actually engage in a restorative conversation. They're willing to go there with the goal of, hey, we may not see eye to eye. We may not even agree at the end of the day, but that's not the goal. The goal is to restore the relationship. They truly hear you. But if you take this prescriptive method, you do step one and you do it flawlessly, you have the right motive and they don't hear you. Maybe they're kind of closed off. They won't even engage in the conversation. Maybe they even become combative. That is when you can move on to step two. You can go to a fellow brother or sister in Christ who's a mature believer, somebody maybe in your group or your mentor, and you say to them, hey, I need some help having this conversation. Now, you have to pick the right person here. They have to have the same motive of restoration, and they have to be willing to pray and walk into that follow-up chat with that objective mindset. Now, you go and maybe you sit down and you try and have that follow-up conversation, and you aren't met with someone listening. They're still combative. They're pushing against you. That's when you can move to step three. And here's what you do. You simply email David at tfh.org and he'll take care of all your problems. No. That's when... That's not even the right church. tfh.org is a different church. Oh. That's great. We're going to send him to a different church yeah. to deal with all your stuff. You're That's welcome, awesome. David. You're welcome. <laughs> 
So that's when you come to the leadership of the church, whether that's your small group leader or someone in a position of authority, a pastor, and you bring it to the church. You say, hey, I've tried step one. I've tried step two. Now I'm coming to you. And then if that person is still not acting as a kingdom person, they're still not listening, then if all else fails and only then Jesus says this, that's when we move into verse 17 and he says, you can treat that person like a tax collector or a pagan. Now really quick, let me just clear up what that doesn't mean. (laughs) That doesn't mean that we shun them. That doesn't mean that we excommunicate them. Instead, we do what Jesus did. How did Jesus treat tax collectors and pagans? He treated them with love and with grace. So although they won't hear us, although they won't engage in a restorative chat, we still treat them with love and with grace. But we also have the understanding and we don't have an expectation that they will act as a kingdom person acts. Instead, it's just love and grace that we give them. So good. All right. So beyond having the right uh, motive, we need to have number two, we need to have the right mindset, the right mindset. Um, I love that word mindset because it means to have a predetermined inclination. It means that I'm approaching this conversation with another person and my mind is already made up about the outcome. I, I know what the intent here is. I know where we're heading. I'm closed-minded on the matter. And, and, and that might not sound like good advice. Like, shouldn't you have an open mind as you get into these conversations? Actually, in this case, we've been called to have a closed mind. Jesus doesn't just suggest it. He actually commands that we step into these conversations with a closed mind, but not the kind of closed mind that you're thinking. Here's the closed-minded mentality of a kingdom person. As we deal with offense, we must predetermine to forgive. Predetermined to forgive. This is not an option. This is not something I'm hoping for. I have made up my mind When I step into this conversation, I have already forgiven the person on the other side of this chat, regardless of the nature of the offense. I'm predetermined to forgive. Uh, As Jesus begins to to give us this method here in Matthew 18, uh, after he's concluded, uh, he's met with kind of an odd request from one of his disciples. He's like, hey, I got a question, hand lifted, it's Peter. And uh, Peter's like, so I hear what you're saying, Jesus. Uh, we do the thing, we have the conversation, we go to the other brother, we go to the church. Um, but let me ask you a little, little sidebar question here. How many times am I supposed to do this? Like, what if this keeps happening? What if they keep offending me? What if they keep hurting me? What if they keep posting about me? Come on, what if they keep spreading rumors about me? Then what am I supposed to do? How many times am I supposed to forgive this person? That's an honest question. Yeah. And, and Jesus responds, Somewhat sarcastically, I love that Jesus has sarcasm. It makes me feel justified in my sarcasm sometimes. But, but he responds back and he says, oh, Peter, great, great question. Here's the answer. Go ahead and forgive that person 70 times, seven times. Now, if you're doing math, it's 490 times. But, but Jesus isn't saying like, hey, 490 is the threshold. After that, you can do whatever you want. Like he's not encouraging you to keep a tally in your back pocket like, okay, that's 490. I dare you to offend me one more time because we are going to blows after this, all right? Game over. I've done my job. That's not what he's saying. He's using some arbitrary hypothetical number because really what Jesus is saying here is as kingdom people, we have been called to extend limitless, unending forgiveness and grace. We just keep on forgiving those who have offended us. That's a tall order when you think about it. 
it seems impossible, and it honestly seems a little bit unfair. But Jesus begins to explain in the following verses, through the conclusion of this chapter, why he would make such a lofty demand of kingdom people by using a story, by using a parable. We're going to go through it. It's a bit long, but you can catch it on the screen. Uh, Here's what he goes on to say in Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who'd borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors, who, uh, brought, who, who he brought in, owed him 10,000 talents, roughly $3.5 billion in modern standard. Uh, he couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master, and he begged him, please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. And then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him, and he forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who only owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed the man by the throat and he demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. Sound familiar? But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and they told him everything that had happened. And then the king called in the man he'd forgiven and he said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. And then look at this statement from Jesus. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. That's a heavy verse right there. Now, now we don't have time to unpack that whole parable. There's a lot there. Uh, We've actually done it once before. If you want to go back, we did a series called Heart Attack, uh, where we've unpacked this entire parable in a, a sermon entitled How to Free an Unforgiving Heart. For today, for the sake of time, I want to just focus in on the main application of this text. Uh, Anytime you read a parable in the Bible, you're supposed to ask yourself this question. Who am I in this story? And the answer to that question is pretty obvious as we consider this text. You and I, all of us, we are that servant that was forgiven an astronomical amount of debt. A debt that none of us could ever repay. Does anyone in the room have three and a half billion dollars? Please identify yourself. I'd love to know who you are. Yeah. No, there's no way we could have repaid the debt. In fact, the Bible calls it in Romans chapter three, a debt of sin that no one, none of us could repay. Every time you lie, every time you cheat, every time you lust, every time you fail, it's like another dollar being tallied up on what you owe the master until you rack up three and a half billion dollars worth of debt that there's no way you could repay. Only our debt is not monetary, is it? Romans 3 says that the wages, the payment for our sin is death. We've all racked up a debt of death that we could not repay. But but then, like the, the, the servant in this story, there was a moment probably for most of us in the room, I remember mine very vividly, where we came and we, we got down on our knees, whether literal or in the spirit, and we began to beg the king for mercy. We said, Jesus, there is no way I can pay for my debt of sin. 
I've failed, I've fallen. I'm gonna probably continue to fail and continue to fall, but I am begging you for something I do not deserve, but I desperately need. I need your mercy. Will you forgive me for my sin? Will you forgive me of my debt? Will you allow me to walk free from this thing that I've racked up for myself? I know that I don't deserve it, but I'm begging you for it. And in his grace, God did not say, no, go to jail until you can pay back what you owe me. No, in his grace, he looked at you and he said, son, daughter, I love you so much and I will wipe away your debt of sin. You don't owe me anything. I have already paid the price. I'll take your debt upon myself. Come on, how many grateful today that you don't have to pay God back for all of your failures, all of your past? I for one am grateful that I get to stand a free man now on this side of salvation. That's the beauty of the gospel. You can't earn it, you don't deserve it, but his grace is a free gift. We've received forgiveness for something that we could never repay. But now, having received it, there's a demand on our lives. Jesus said, having received this unmerited forgiveness, I command you to extend it to others. Freely you have received, now freely you must give. He says, don't you see how much I've forgiven you of? I know sometimes it's easy to forget the BC version of yourself, but just look back through your Instagram, you'll find it, is there? Don't forget what you've been forgiven of. And listen, he's not, he's not shoving this in your face to like make you feel bad, nor is he saying this to try to minimize the offense. He's not saying, okay, what that person did, it's no big deal. Look at what you did and not what that, that's not what he's saying. He acknowledges that pain is real, that trauma is real. Yes, you have been hurt, but in the middle of your pain, he offers you the beautiful gift of perspective. He says, go ahead, place all the sin and their offense on the scales. And here's what you'll find. They are heavily weighted in your favor, my friend. I have forgiven you of so much. And now that you've received it, I'm asking you to extend it to other people. Now, now this is one of those kingdom principles that we could probably all agree is way easier said than done. It's easy to hear about it and clap a little bit on a Sunday, yay! But then to put it into practice is really stinking hard. I bet you there's someone even here like, Tim, you have no idea what somebody has put me through. You have no idea what was taken from me. You have no idea how many friends I've lost or like, I, even as I'm looking around the room right now, I, I know some stories of people here. Yeah, I, I, I may not know all the details and I don't know the weight of the offense. Only you know that, but, but here's what I do know. I know what's at stake if you don't forgive. Jesus didn't leave that, it went up for debate. No gray area. What did he say? If you are unwilling to forgive others of their sin, then I cannot forgive you of yours. Or as his analogy stated, if you're so bent on locking people up in a prison cell as a result of their offense, just know that there's a prison cell for you waiting right next door to them. You have to predetermine to forgive. Uh, I love this spot and even that analogy, that story of the man sitting in that prison cell. And as Tim and I were preparing this sermon, we couldn't help but imagine the people that were maybe in the room sitting in that very prison cell. 
sitting there and you're hurt and your pain because of what somebody did to you, an offense that they uh, did against you. And I think that so many times we think if we hold that grudge, we hold that unforgiveness, we're holding our offender hostage. We're holding them in a prison cell. But in reality, in light of that story, our understanding is that we're actually the one behind bars. We're in a self-induced prison. And I know that when you're sitting there in that, you can't imagine getting out. But I believe that there's a moment today that the Holy Spirit wants to invite you into to free yourself from that place. And you know that freedom is on the other side of your willingness to step into that conversation with a predetermination to forgive. Now, I'm not gonna stay here any longer, but it's hard to imagine freedom when you've been stuck in a prison cell for so long. But let me tell you, freedom is on the other side, that you don't have to stay in that place. When I imagine this, it makes me think back to uh, a guy that we knew years ago named Matt who came to something that Tim and I put on, a retreat called Life Change. During this retreat, we went through different areas that we addressed different areas of our life where we needed freedom. And one of these areas was on forgiveness. And we taught a session on Matthew chapter 18. And at the end of that session, we had a response time where we invited people to come forward and to receive prayer and also share with the person they were praying with who they needed to forgive. Uh, This guy, Matt, was at this retreat and he came forward and he shared with the person he was praying with that he needed to forgive a high school fellow football player. He said that one day they were having a practice scrimmage and this fellow player tackled him. And he didn't have to forgive him because he tackled him. That wasn't a big deal. But it's what the guy did after he tackled him. Uh, As he tackled him, Matt laid on the ground, face in the grass, and this fellow player took his foot and he stepped on Matt's back, kind of to assert his dominance over him that, I won, you lost, and he did it in a joking manner. But what he didn't realize is that when he stepped on him, his cleat punctured through Matt's jersey and punctured into his spine, causing a severe wound. So Matt went to the doctor, went and got medical attention, and they put him on a medication for it, and they gave him some painkillers for the pain. But weeks and then months had passed, and this wound wouldn't heal. It developed into this rare condition where this wound just stayed open and festering, and it continued to cause him pain. So Matt continued to take the medication, and he continued to take the painkillers. And he shared that every single day, every single time he would take that pill in his hand and go to swallow it, he would think about the guy who hurt him. He would think about the pain and he would have anger towards this guy who not only caused him an injury, but caused him to be addicted to painkillers time after time. So Matt said to the person he was praying with, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to stay in this self-induced prison. I don't want to repeat this cycle. I want to forgive him. Uh, They started to pray, and then Matt kind of did a pause, like, hang on real quick. Just kind of a weird thing to do in like a moment, but he was like, I got to run to my car and get something. So Matt runs out into the parking lot, and he opens up his trunk, and he grabs a big black garbage bag full of empty pill bottles He had apparently saved every single pill bottle for the last seven years that he'd taken. This was a monument or a memento to his pain to remember the pain that this guy put him through. 
And he brought it in, brought it down to the altar and he dumped the pills out and he said, no more. I'm not doing this anymore. So the person he was praying with encouraged him to go and have a conversation. So Matt called this old high school buddy and he said, hey, can we talk? And they sat down and they had a restorative conversation. And you know, the interesting thing was this guy did, had no idea that he had even hurt Matt. As many of our offenders are in that same state. Many people don't know what they've done. But they had this restorative conversation and then we got a call from Matt just a few weeks later and he said, you guys, the most amazing, miraculous thing happened. My back is healed. <laughs> After seven years of this festering wound, it's healed. I'm not on the medication anymore. I'm off the pain meds. And then Matt began to share. He said, I know how I got healed. My physical healing was attached to my willingness to step into forgive. An incredible thing. Now, I'm not here to suggest today that if you're willing to go and talk to the person who offended you and have the conversation and you happen to have a physical ailment that you too will be healed. I'm not dangling carrots. God doesn't dangle That's carrots. Right. That's right. But maybe it'll happen. I don't know. Also, I'm not here to suggest that if you're willing to have the conversation, that it will result in restoration. Because it may not. They may not hear you. But guess what? That part is not your responsibility. That's right. That's right. Jesus says that our responsibility is to simply go and have the conversation. Come on. So good. Hey, Ben, you guys can come so that we can conclude. I hope that you, um, you got the very practical nature of uh, this content today. And here's your to-do if you need a couple of little bullet points. Have the chat. How about this? Embrace the awkwardness. Because sometimes those chats are a little bit awkward. Embrace the awkwardness. Don't cling to your right to be right. Focus on rest rest restoration. Don't let that bitter root grow up. Quit watering with silence and predetermined to forgive. I think if we'll do these things, not only will we have some great relationships in the body of Christ, not only will we not be estranged with one another, but we will be an answer to Jesus's prayer in John 17. We will have such perfect unity that it will display to the watching world. Let me make it personal. It'll display to your lost family members. It'll display to that friend that you haven't talked to in 10 years. It'll display to the broken of San Francisco, to the surfers of Pacifica, to the living and dead in coma, <laughs> not the dead. I mean, imagine this. Imagine what it looks like when the body of Christ is able to unite, even, even when they don't agree about certain things. Now, what a picture to our world right now that loves to divide simply because we disagree over some stuff. It'll be a witness to a watching world that Jesus is real and that he loves them. Because listen, that, that unity, it's not the absence of conflict. We're gonna have some conflict along the way, but unity looks like resolving conflict the kingdom way. And that's the kind of people we're gonna be at the Father's house. We're gonna talk about it, we're gonna resolve it, and we're gonna move on in perfect unity so that we can show people the love of Jesus. You up for that? Let's, let me pray over you as we, uh, as we land the plane here this morning. Jesus, we, we thank you for this um, simple method that you've given us in scripture. And I pray that the practical nature of this would not be lost on any of us. Sometimes we look for deep spiritual revelation, but we miss the simple practical things because it just sounds too simple. 
but may we do the simple things because the simple things are powerful. May we pray for those that have offended us. May we engage in these conversations. And even as we do, God, I pray for supernatural restoration. I pray for friends and family members that haven't been able to talk for a decade. And as a result of of a mature believer stepping into that conversation, I pray for restoration. I see uh, kids who are estranged from parents and I see siblings that haven't talked to each other in years and, or maybe siblings that are just holding something against one another. But as this conversation takes place, just like the, the oil of God, the oil of the spirit being poured over those things, it brings healing, it brings restoration. And even as that we, we conclude here as we pray this out, uh, maybe there'd be one or two people here this morning who would say, hey, Tim, um, you talked about the servant who had racked up such a debt that he couldn't repay it to the king. And I, I am that person today. I feel like I've got a debt between me and God and things are not right between the two of us. And I don't know how I can go about having a conversation with somebody else before I talk to God. And the truth is you can't. You can't dish out what you haven't first received. And maybe before we talk about giving forgiveness away, we need to receive forgiveness. Maybe there's someone here today that needs to receive the forgiveness of the Father before you leave this place. If that's you, I wanna pray with you. I wanna pray that that distance between you and God would be resolved. You'd be brought close to Him today and you'd experience what that servant experienced, the wiping away of your debt of sin and the ability to walk free. And if that's you this morning, you say, Tim, I I know that I need to get things right with God before I leave this place. I wanna pray a prayer of commitment with you. But before I do, would you quickly just lift up your hand and look at me so that I know who I'm praying with? Got you there, bro, thank you. Yeah, I got you there in the back, awesome. Yeah, right over here, sweet. All right, if I don't see, I apologize. All right, let's pray this. You can pray it in your heart. You can, you can uh, pray it out under your breath, whatever you feel most comfortable with. Just say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you that you gave yours in exchange for mine. Forgive me of my sin. Like the servant in this story, I pray that the weight of my debt would fall off of my shoulders and that I would experience your perfect forgiveness today. Help me to be your disciple, to walk in your ways, to truly embrace this life of being a kingdom person. From this day forward, until the moment where I see you in heaven and you look me in the eye and you say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy that has been set before you. I I, I receive all of you today and I give all of me in return in Jesus name. And the church said, amen. Man, come on, give it up for those making that decision this morning. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.